So, to begin with, I just want to think back to what's quite a long time ago now, which was the Libya intervention of, of last year, which I have been calling recent, but at this point is, is no longer recent. So, one of the things that the Libya intervention did, and which the prospects of a Syria intervention are doing now, is open up a debate again about the relationship between international law, imperialism, and war, and humanitarianism. So if you actually look at a lot of the debates that are playing out right now, it, it does kind of feel a little bit like we've gone back in time, or that we haven't even advanced at all since a series of debates that we thought had been put to rest by the striking failures in Afghanistan and Iraq. So there have been a lot of debates in various bits of the political spectrum, on the left, on the right, and in the centrist, all about these kind of about humanitarianism and how useful it was. Usually I made a joke about Christopher Hitchens here, but now that he's actually dead, it's not as funny, so I won't. But this particular um, debate is part of a much broader tradition of thinking about the relationship between humanitarianism, international law, and imperialism. And this has been going on for a very long time, but in more recent years, a lot of this stuff has revolved around the idea of the war on terror and humanitarian intervention. So probably most people are aware that a lot of these debates have been going on in the international relations. So there have been a whole series of imperialism debates and things like that. But what people are less aware of, I think, is that there have been a whole series of debates around international law on these subjects as well. So there's a lot of international legal literature, from radicals to liberals to conservatives, that have been trying to deal with this relationship between imperialism and international law and understand how it might be related to race. Now, in a lot of ways, this makes sense, because if you actually look at the vast majority of military interventions that you see, they're almost always couched or justified in international legal terms. It's very rare that you would see a state go into war without trying to justify what it was doing in legal terms. And equally, that interventions are very often contested in, in legal terms, and you can see this a lot with the anti-war movements and things like that. Um, so the stuff around the war on terror and humanitarian intervention are absolutely creatures of international law. They're very directly talked about in international legal terms. So one of the things that I want to do in this talk is bring together these different kind of debates and shows the ways in which they might productively shed light on each other, but that's a kind of a sub-thing. So I'm going to talk a lot initially about a group of scholars who operate under the kind of auspices of what's called third world approaches to international law, which is a kind of strong tendency within the critical wing of international legal theory. Um, we can take what they're saying as a stand-in for a whole series of broader like, theoretical problematics and, and analogous to other arguments, but I'm going to look at them specifically because they are what I know best, and they state the problem very clearly. So basically what I, think, what I want to think about today is the relationship between race, imperialism, war, and law, and do this through the lens, the, the, the lens of these 12 people. And this is basically composed of three elements. So firstly, what I want to do is reconstruct some of the theoretical accounts of, of, of the racialization of legal argument. Then I want to give a brief account of the contemporary legal justifications for the use of force and explain why the accounts that I've talked about are unsatisfactory, what they failed to do and what account might be more satisfactory. And I then want to reflect very briefly and sketchily on what this might tell us more generally about the relationship between these things. Okay, so war has been a really big element in, in critical legal scholarship, and the aim has generally been to show the way, the aim has been to show how it is that law and the law and the use of force reproduces and reinforces imperial relations. So there's been a really big focus on the way in which contemporary legal justifications are reproducing patterns that have been that have been repeating themselves since the 19th century. So a big part of this has been the analysis of humanitarian intervention and the war on terror. So how have they been explained? So Tony Angie, who's quite a, a big scholar, 
argues that the specifics of the war on terror can be traced to back to something like the civilizing mission. So he, he looks back to the Bush Doctrine of 2002, which was like 10 years ago now, which is like slightly terrifying. But if anyone can actually remember that far back, some of you may have been very young then. Um, the argument that got articulated around this Bush Doctrine was the idea that you could was the idea of preventive self-defense, preemptive self-defense. So essentially the argument was in the changed conditions of global terrorism where terrorists could have their hands on nuclear weapons and things like that, um, it, wasn't, it could not be the case that you could wait for an attack to be imminent or actual. Instead what you had to do was intervene preemptively before it was that the, uh, um, the smoking gun could become the mushroom cloud is the, the phrase to get used. So the problem with this argument, at least in formal legal terms, is that if you took um, international law's universality seriously, it would have seemed to indicate that anyone could intervene against anyone else. So the, the kind of the, the, the example that gets used a lot, and we could use like today, is that if there was a right to preventative self-defense, Iran should seriously be allowed to bomb the U.S. today because if anyone has anything to worry about in that respect, it's Iran. So one route that could be taken with this could have been to have left that as a juridical problem but understood that factually this just wasn't going to happen. So a kind of old balance of power conception. But this wasn't actually what took place. Instead, alongside the doctrine of preventative self-defense, there was a logic of road states. So what it was argued was is that some states were the sources of great instability in the international legal order and they were open to the use of preventative self-defense and at the same time couldn't use this. So what Annie argues is that this is a return to a, like a, the, the 19th century international law, essentially, where only some civilized states would have the capacity to use force and other uncivilized states would have the capacity just to be intervened in. But it's not just the case that the states had the capacity to use force. The arguments for self-defense also fused with humanitarian arguments. So essentially here it was argued that because the threats to the international order from these states stemmed from the internal life of these uncivilized states, it was necessary that they be transformed into civilized or liberal states so they would no longer be a threat to the world order. So Annie ties this to a broader logic of what he calls the dynamic of difference, where international law is driven by a logic of essentially othering whereby international law constantly posits these others and then says they're different and then tries to transform them into like, cells but then posits a new other and so on and so on and so on. And he says that's a kind of infinitely repeating um, problem. So this implicitly and explicitly contains within a theory of the racialization of, of the international legal argument because it's basing rights and Jews on presumed intrinsic properties that are related to cultural or geographical differentiation. And the particular theory of racialization that's here is based around a primacy of race and a binary conception. So on the first point, it's primary because there's a racial logic that drives international law and it's the central organizing principle of it. And on the second point, it's binary because it's based on a difference between a civilized and an uncivilized or a center and a periphery. So similar approaches have been taken to humanitarian intervention. And I don't want to get too bogged down in talking about other people, but another important scholar in this respect has been Matua. And he argues around humanitarian intervention that it's structured around a metaphor of savages, victims, and saviors. Essentially, his argument is, in a well-worn path, actually, that firstly, the human rights law and discourse is Eurocentric. It's been developed inside of Europe historically and is always applied outside of Europe. He then says that humanitarian intervention is basically continually reacting this metaphor whereby it posits certain states as being savage in as much as they are wantonly violating the, the human rights of certain victims 
who are innocent and powerless, and therefore a saviour has to come in and save them. So for Matilda, this is racialized because the savages and the victims are always in a periphery, and they're always not white. And the saviors are always the West, and the West is unable to intervene. So there's a lot to recommend in these accounts, but in both instances what we have is a theory of racialization where it is both primary and binary again. So it's primary because in both instances, and this is much broader than these two, these are my kind of examples, but I think it goes on in a whole bunch of people, what we see foregrounded is a conception of imperialism and racialization in which race is the main issue. And it's binary because the main driver for the legal argument is the form of racialization which enables a core or an inside to exploit a periphery or an outside. So I think there's a lot that's plausible and correct in these accounts, but I think that this particular account that they adopt isn't able to adequately account for the specific transformations that we've seen in legal argument throughout the course of the, the past. I, I go for about 20 years, but we could, we could extend that further. So my argument basically is that the legal arguments around humanitarian intervention and the war on terror have to be seen as being on a continuum with other deployments and justifications for the use of force. So I'm going to be slightly patronizing here and just very briefly explain the basic law governing this stuff because I'm never sure who's in my audience. But basically, under the UN Charter, under the UN Charter regime, the law was designed to centralize and minimize the use of force internationally. So basically the idea was that following the Second World War, we don't want wars to happen so much. So we, they forbid the use of force, and when the use of force is happening, it's mainly channeled through international institutions. So under Article 2.4 of the UN Charter, there's a blanket prohibition on the use of force against the territorial integrity and political independence of states. And the only exceptions to this are Article 51 of the Charter, which says that you can act in self-defense against imminent or actual armed attacks, with the understanding that a state has to be ascribed responsibility for these attacks and that the force you use in retaliation has to be necessary and proportionate and that you can be authorised to use force by the Security Council under Chapter 7 of the Charter. So if the Security Council finds that there's a threat to international peace and security, it can authorise the use of force, but this needs a majority vote inside of the Security Council and it can be vetoed by any of the permanent fight. Okay, so that's the basic kind of setup. So I think the starting point of any kind of analysis of the way in which this stuff works has to be the, the first Gulf War, where, which was the NATO-led invasion of Iraq. And this hasn't been that discussed in a lot of the critical literature. So what's interesting is that this was achieved through fairly normal and uncontroversial means. So Iraq invades Kuwait. Kuwait claims self-defense, but what's really important is that the UN Security Council determines there's been a, a threat and a breach of the peace, and so force is enabled under Chapter 7 of the Charter. So this remained a kind of racialized use of force in as much as Iraq is still posited as this kind of irrational threat to the world order that needs to be dealt with mercilessly. Um, all of the political propaganda around this stuff is heavily racialized, but it was gone about in the most uncontroversial and normal of intervening. So George Bush, the older one, um, dubbed this the start of a new world order because following years of paralysis of the Security Council in the Cold War when this would just be vetoed, um, finally the Security Council would be able to secure peace throughout the world. So it's important to say here that this was a preferred form of legal argument, Security Council resolution, because they avoided the need to have any connection between the state that was going to be invaded and the violence, because the Security Council is essentially very rarely reviewed, and the violence the, the, the force used didn't have to be proportionate to the force that was faced, it was just whatever was necessary to restore international peace and security, and it's legally the most uncontroversial form of intervention. 
So the issue is that why is it that this form of legal justification of the use of force, which is a racialized form of argument, wasn't deployed in other interventions? So here it's just useful to go for a brief kind of whistle-stop of various uses of force. So firstly, you have the cost of intervention, which I think everyone at this point knows was justified under the rubric of humanitarian intervention. So the argument here was simply that in an era of human rights, the meaning of sovereignty had to be changed. States no longer have the right to undermine the rights of the people that are in their territory, and therefore it's possible that you might be able to intervene and not breach sovereignty. So the Security Council did find that there was a, a threat to the peace, but it failed to authorize force. NATO essentially argued that because of the foregoing analysis, it could intervene on humanitarian grounds unilaterally, and that because the Security Council had already said that there was a threat to um, the peace, it could fulfill the will of the international community with its invasion. So equally, we have um, the, second, the second Iraq war, which I'm not going to go into very much, but was a kind of idea of a, a, an implied Security Council resolution which simply required that since Iraq was in material breach, there was no need for the second resolution. So finally, and I'm, I'm doing this last, even though it's chronologically strange because it's the most important, is the war on terror stuff, which continues to be invoked to this day, notwithstanding the lack of explicit reference to the war on terror in the rhetoric of the Obama administration. Any look at the legal justifications that they do for the continued attacks is using the same basic arguments that have been used since 2002. So interestingly, following 9-11, there actually was Security Council authorization for the use of force against Afghanistan. But importantly, what it did was to affirm the inherent right of self-defense against terrorists. So it both authorized force, but also said that self-defense could be used against terrorists. So this opened the door for um, military force to be deployed against terrorism without the authorization of the Security Council. And very specifically, the US government chose to pursue that line of argument. So the argument then becomes one of self-defense. The US and its allies are in a global war with terrorism. They're under the threat of attack from various non-state actors. So they're unable to act preemptively in order to stop these actors from committing attacks. So initially, like we've already heard, this was about rogue states, but increasingly it's accompanied by a system of secret and public treaties. So the question we have to ask is, why have we had this divergence in different racialized legal justifications for the use of force? Why exactly has it been that there has been a failure to use the relatively uncontroversial authorization of the Security Council? And any kind of account that's going to be dealing with this has to account for this. So the central problem of the accounts that I've talked about earlier is that whilst clearly an objective of the law has been to create these kind of racialized rationales for the intervention into peripheral states, it can't explain why these rationales have assumed specific legal forms in specific contexts. Um, it's perfectly possible, theoretically, that one could intervene using the kind of very uncontroversial Security Council rationale. So the kind of primary binary thing I've been talking about earlier can't explain these particular legal forms. So what is the common feature to the kind of interventions I'm talking about? Well, the very obvious surface level issue, but one that I don't think is without value, is that all of these interventions have sought to avoid the Security Council. So this can sound kind of banal, but it's actually pretty important, because all of the interventions were specifically designed in such a way that they wouldn't be subject to a Security Council veto. So why is this important? So here I want to kind of bracket this briefly and step back and think about a number of debates that have taken place um, in Marxist international relations field, which haven't really developed into, penetrated into the international legal field. 
So a lot of debates have talked about the, the nature of contemporary and historical imperialism. And they've tried to think about, and one of the big elements has been whether imperialism is characterized by rivalries between various imperialist states or whether it is that there's a kind of core and periphery of which the core is relatively unified and is exploiting the periphery. And this is played out in various different contexts and in different ways. And in the contemporary period, a lot of those questions have been, does the US have any rivals internationally or is it the sole superpower? And a lot of people have taken the kind of legal argument I'm talking about as being a sign of the kind of utter victory of the United States, uh, like hyperpower status. And this, now these debates aren't even touched upon very much inside of the, the, the critical literature, and this is important, because I think the only explanation that you can find for the various changes in legal forms of racialization is the fact that there has been assertions of independent imperialist power by states that aren't allied by the United States. So if we go back to the kind of chronology I was talking about briefly, what's like startling about the first Iraq war is that it takes place just as the Soviet Union is in a period of collapse. Um, it still is the Soviet Union at this point, but it's heavily dependent on Western aid, it's in a series of political crises, and it's pledged itself to cooperate. Um, in every other instance, we saw determined political opposition by, at some points, Europe, um, Russia, and China, and Russia and China especially, which was translated sorry, into the threat of a veto inside of the Security Council. So in Kosovo, Russia had obviously begun to engage, like, regain its importance and was a traditional ally of Soviet. In Afghanistan, although there was initially a lot of sympathy for the US and no real interest in protecting the Taliban, both Russia and China sought to impose conditions upon any authorization of the use of force and wanted it to be a limited mandate. So the US very clearly decided to go it alone and obviously the war on terror has played out in more contemporary terms has been opposed by Russia and China at various points. And obviously in terms of the Iraq war, everyone opposed that. So once we include the kind of paralysis that was in place in the Cold War, or even if we don't, we can essentially see that rivalry is actually the norm inside of these international institutions. So what we can see that's driving particular racialized articulation of the use of force isn't just the need to exploit peripheral territories. It's the need to circumvent the problems of emerging rivalries who are using their power through the Security Council to block this. So rather than being a kind of sign of strength of US imperialism, it's actually a sign of weakness that it's forced to go outside of what is the most uncontroversial legal doctrine and create these particular legal doctrines. So what we're dealing with is a kind of response to inter-imperialist rivalry. So viewed from this perspective, I think we can start to see a commonality in these legal doctrines. Um, basically what's happening in each instance is that there's a first move that posits that the international system is somehow in danger and it's threatened by certain peripheral states and their threats. So it can be massive human rights violations, terrorism, weapons of mass destruction. These are all seen as threatening the international order. Then it's argued that the, the, the international system should be able to deal with this, but it can't because it's blocked by some irrational states like Russia or China is usually. Therefore, someone has to be empowered to save the system through a use of specific legal doctrines to act outside of the system in order to save it. So in consequence, the, the way that it plays out is that the US and its allies are attempting to make a legal justification which allows them to avoid the normal fora of the international legal order in which they might be challenged by their rivals. So on this reading, um, both the war on terror and, and humanitarian intervention when seen not in general but in their specific terms, are actually attempts by the US and its allies to legally entrench a hegemonic position as against a whole bunch of emerging rivals and articulate legal doctrines that allow only them and their allies to intervene. 
So the point with racialization here would be that it's a double issue. Firstly, it's directly argued that racial, like that, that rivals are in some sense irrational and often racially different. So you can see this in various kind of U.S. national security strategies and the way in which they approach countries like Russia and China. You can see this in the fact that they try to divide old Europe and new Europe. You can see this in the fact that various presidential candidates have thought about things like a league of democracies as against the, um, against the United Nations. Um, but crucially, when these differences are articulated, they don't enable intervention against the rifles. No one is arguing that, we, that, that Russia or China should be invaded. All it is argued is that they don't possess the right to use these special legal doctrines that the US and its allies would be able to. Um, and the second point is that the specific logic of using specific racialized legal forms is in order to enable this intervention and entrench a coalition of people who can intervene where the rivals can't. So inter-imperialist rivalry enters into this in a, in a double sense. So I think this is compounded by an issue that hasn't been discussed very much, but I think it's quite interesting, which is the 2008 um, brief land war between Russia and Georgia. So Kalinikos, I think, very interestingly characterizes this as the geopolitical component of the economic crisis. Um, so the US is unable to respond properly to Russia's invasion of Georgia because it was involved in an economic crisis and Europe and, and traditional ally states of, of the US had a close relationship with Russia. But what's interesting is that we can also add that there was an element of legal crisis about this because actually what Russia did in this invasion was to deploy all of the kind of attempts that the US had made to entrench its own um, hegemonic power and use them itself. So it was argued that there was a genocide going on in Georgia and therefore Russia could intervene in a humanitarian manner. So it's interesting that the response to this from George Bush was that Georgia is a sovereign nation and its territorial integrity must be respected. Now, it's easy enough to like, read this as essentially being hypocrisy, but I think it also betrays the logic that's been guiding these particular legal articulations which is that Russia is basically not even being seen as having the right to invoke the idea of humanitarian intervention. It's not that they said, oh, well, there isn't a humanitarian crisis. It was not even contemplated that Russia could even talk in those terms. So this betrays the kind of idea that Russia has no capacity to invoke these, but it also, because Russia managed to do this quite successfully, betrays that the crisis has actually opened up rivalry even further. Okay. So... What does this say more generally about the logic of racialization? Well, I think the first thing that we should say is that I, I think the foregoing account has essentially problematized the, the relationship between race, international law, and imperialism that, that some people would usually put forward. It can't be the case that, as is normally argued, the civilized, uncivilized dichotomy is what's driving international legal argument. Now, in historical terms, this actually makes a lot of sense. So a lot of people have projected back these civilized, uncivilized arguments historically and said that this, is, this has all been going on since the 19th century. But equally, some people have noted that you can only really understand the way in which international law historically functions through the lens of um, inter-imperialist rivalry. So Gatti, I think, has argued quite successfully that you can only really understand the old law of territorial acquisition whereby certain civilized states could acquire uncivilized territory if you understand... Um, the role that inter-imperialist rivalry here. So Matt Craven put it quite well when he essentially argues that when a, an imperialist power made a treaty 
with a native, he wasn't making that treaty with the native for the sake of making it with the native. The imperialist powers could have simply taken those things over by brute force. The point was they were demonstrating control as against other imperialist powers that might want to acquire that territory. And this is important because actually if we think about this, Historically, it seems very difficult to see why, in this kind of scenario, you would need to have these kind of justification at all. We could say that law served a kind of ideological role, where it was, but then who was it justifying these things to? Presumably not to the natives, who were not particularly enamoured with European international law, and presumably not at home, because international law was a thing, uh, a knowledge possessed by a relatively narrow cadre of experts. Um, it could be a form of self-justification, but then the question would be, why did this justification take the form of law? Why wasn't it a religious thing or anything like that, as it has been historically? So, glossing over an argument I would normally make, um, we can say that one of the distinctive features of law, actually, is that it's a way of mediating disputes between abstract, formally equal individuals engaging in mutual relations. Internationally, this would imply inter-imperialist rivalry, with the colonies essentially seen as territory or property which is passed between these guys. Um, so I think that that means that even more so, any account of racialization in its relationship to international law has to take inter-imperialist rivalry into account. I think this sh reinforces the need to shift from the issue of racism as a foregrounded thing and an explanatory claim to one that is produced by border dynamics of the international scene. So what would this look like? And this is, this is all very sketchy. Um, so I'd like to start from Fanon because I think that he's a very interesting figure in terms of trying to work through a materialist theory of race, which nonetheless is, is, is done by a kind of activist in, in the third world and a theorist. So Fanon's basic point is that race is a social form that comes into being in specific material circumstances. And he basically argues, and he says very simply, that race arises when one group exploits another, then differentiation occurs. He doesn't think that it's entirely reducible to forms of exploitation, but it's inseparable from it as a, in that it, it takes a given set of material conditions for race to arise as a social form, which then has distinct distributive consequences. So the problem with this, obviously, is that this still remains in the kind of logic of the inside-outside core periphery thing that I've, I've talked about before. What's interesting is that Fanon actually attempts to think through a theory of the changing forms of racism. And he does this by tying the changing forms of racism to transformations in particular technical and productive capacities. So he argues initially you have a kind of a crude biological racism, which is tied to cruder forms of exploitation, but more sophisticated forms of economic exploitation require more, specific, uh, more sophisticated forms of, of cultural and other kinds of racism. So this kind of idea of a, a changing material basis that changes the way in which racial forms are articulated is important. It's also true to say that Fanon doesn't just think of racism as being a kind of monolithic vision that separates a kind of an in-group from an out-group. But he definitely understands that the functionality of race can be disaggregated. So he has this idea of the racial distribution of guilt where essentially race is used in such a way as to separate the different types of oppressed and stratify them in such a way as to turn different elements of them against each other. So in this sense, race would be a kind of tactical thing that's used to stratify opposition to the existing order. And this maps quite nicely onto some of the kind of materials labor historians like David Rodigo or Noah Ignatev, who understood the tactical function of race in stratifying the labor movement in order to manage it. So, this, I think, provides a kind of building block that we could think about how inter-imperialist rivalry could be fought. Because if we can talk about race as stratifying um, 
the oppressed. It, there's no reason why race couldn't also take be a form of stratifying tactically in order to stratify one's rivals. So one, one wouldn't expect this explanation to take place in, in the kind of domestic field because obviously they're dealing with domestic um, racial processes. But internationally, I would suggest one of the reasons why this hasn't been taken up is that at the time that a lot of these scholars were writing, there were very good material and political reasons for them to stress the relationship between the kind of exploiter and exploited. Rivalry was at a minimum because there was a generalized kind of third world uprising and imperialists were relatively unified in fighting against this third world uprising. There was also the very problematic issue of the Soviet Union and whether it was socialist or non-socialist and whether therefore it could be rivalrous. So this could then make us think about things kind of like this. Following that, there's been a kind of historical and material transformation in, in which the particular conjunctural circumstances of imperialism have changed. Um, so in this way, the material structure of imperialism is such that it's shifted particular articulations of the kind of foundational racism between um, exploiter and exploited, and that different conjunctural and tactical considerations can shape the form in which this basic fundamental racism is articulated. Moreover, owing to the kind of tendencies of the territorialization in capitalism, but also of the, the internationalization of competition, there's a tendency to employ, ta um, to employ tactical forms of racial stratification against rivals, which tends to get worse in periods of crisis or intense periods of competition, but that are intrinsically fragile and liable to shift. So in this way, if we were going to think about something like a global color line, we, can't, we can no longer think of it as just being a, a question of who enjoys the benefits of civilization. It's also a question of the particular way in which that fundamental line is shifting in accordance with material and tactical imperatives, and also intersected by a whole series of other lines, as it were. So I'm going to end on Libya, which is where, where I started. So what's strange about Libya is that humanitarian intervention has returned and it's returned through the Security Council. So Security Council Resolution 1973 authorized intervention in Libya. So the question is, how does this fit with the kind of pattern that I've been trying to articulate? Well, firstly, I think it's important to say that the Arab Spring, as it emerged, was a threat to everyone's interests within the kind of inter-imperialist rivalry world. Imperialism as a whole hadn't had much of a foothold into the Arab Spring, and it was looking for a way in. The specific intervention in Libya was a way in. But it's important to say that even within this, there were serious disagreements. The US very specifically wanted to use Libya as a test case to re-legitimize the language of humanitarianism and reinforce its own power. Russia and China very clearly didn't want this and pushed very hard for the limited no-fry zone mandate. It's telling in this respect that Russia and China didn't actually vote for the um, resolution in 1973. They abstained from the vote and didn't veto. This is also playing out in the particular way in which the Syrian intervention is happening. Because Russia's in interests are much more strongly implicated, and because they fear the expansion of US power, Russia is refusing to allow any resolution to go through that doesn't explicitly forbid um, regime change. Um, Russian politicians have said they felt tricked by the Libyan resolution, and the rivalry things are coming back in much more serious ways. They've also been faced by a series of denunciations which are couching a lot of their behavior in pretty racialized terms. So what are my political conclusions here? 
So one of the things that I think that comes out of this, which maybe wasn't immediately apparent but is important, is that there are various people on the left who look at the situation that I've described and say, okay, here's US imperialism, it's bad, here's the UN, it's good, let's back the UN. But at least what I've tried to show is that firstly that stuff in the UN can be just as racialized and as just as imperialist. And that the, the alternative of going back to the UN isn't an anti-imperialist move. It's one side of a rivalry which is structurally built into the way in which international law and imperialism relate together. So you shouldn't exceptionalize either of these doctrines because they're all part of the same basic logic. So this calls for an entirely different political alignment and project which is going to relate to international law in a very different way. And I'm done.